Book Six, Chapter Nine of the History of Sir Richard Carmody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anne Fletcher, Richmond, Tasmania, two thousand and twenty. The History of Sir Richard Carmody by Lucas Mallet. Book Six, Chapter Nine telling how Ludovic Quayle and Honoria St. Quentin watched the trout rise in the long water. Some hour and a half later, Miss St. Quentin passed down the flight of stone steps leading from the southern end of the terrace to the grass slopes of the park. Arrived at the lowest step, she gathered the skirt of her dress up over one arm, thereby securing greater freedom of movement and displaying a straight length of pink and white petticoat. Thus prepared, she fared forth over the still-smoking turf. The storm had passed, but the atmosphere remained thick and humid. A certain opulence of colour obtained in the landscape. The herbs in the grass, wild thyme, wild balm and star-flowered chamomile, smelt strongly aromatic as she trod them underfoot, while the beds of bracken, dried and yellowed by the drought, gave off a sharp, woody scent. Usually, when thus alone and in contact with nature, such matters claimed Honoria's whole attention, ministering to her love of earth-law and of mother-earth, producing in her silent worship of those primitive deities who at once preside over and inhabit the wasteland and the tilth, the untamed forest and the pastures where heavy-uddered sweet-breathed cows lie in the deep meadow-grass the garden-ground, all pleasant orchard-places, and the broad promise of the waving crops. But this afternoon, although the colour, odour, warmth, and all the many voices praising the refreshment of the rain were sensibly present to her, Honoria's thought failed to be engrossed by them. For she was in process of worshipping younger and more compassionate deities, sadder, because more human, ones, whose office lies not with nature in her eternal repose and fecundity, but with man in his eternal failure and unrest. Not August Ceres, giver of the golden harvest-fields, or fierce Sibela, the goddess of the many paps, but spare, brown-habited St. Francis, serving his brethren with bleeding hands and feet, held empire over her meditations. In imagination she saw, saw with only too lively realisation of detail, that eighteen-year-old lad in the factory at Westchurch, drawn up, all the unspent hopes and pleasures of his young manhood active in him, by the loose gearing into the merciless vortex of revolving wheels. And there, without preparation, without pause of warning, without any dignity of shouting multitude, of arena or of stake, martyred, converted in a few horrible seconds from health and wholeness into a formless lump of human waste. And up and down the land, as she reflected, wherever the great systems of trade and labour which build up the mechanical and material prosperity of our day go forward, kindred things happen, let alone question of all those persons who are born into the world already injured, or bearing the seeds of foul and disfiguring diseases in their organs and their blood. Verily, Richard Carmody's sad family was a rather terribly large one, well calculated to maintain its numbers, even to increase. For neither the age of human sacrifice nor of cannibalism is really over, 
nor is the practice of these limited to savage peoples in distant lands or far-away isles of the sea they form the basis actually though in differing of outward aspect of all existing civilizations just as they formed the basis of all past civilizations a basis moreover perpetually re-cemented and re-laid and as she considered being courageous and fair-minded it was inevitable that this should be so unthinkable that it should be otherwise since it made at least indirectly for the prosperity of the majority and development of the race considering which the apparently cruel paradox and irony of it honoria swung down past the scattered hawthorns thick with ruddy fruit across the fragrant herbs and short sweet turf through the straggling fern brakes which impeded her progress plucking at her skirts careless of the rich colour and ample beauty outspread before her but soon as a bird after describing far-ranging circles drops at last upon the from first determined spot so her thoughts settled down with relief yet in a way unwillingly and that not out of any lingering repulsion but rather from a certain proud modesty and self-respect upon richard calmady himself not only did he apprehend all this far more clearly and more intimately than she could had he not spoken of the advantages of a certain blackness honoria's vision became somewhat indistinct but he set out to deal with it in a practical manner and in this connection she began to understand how it had come about that through years of ingratitude and neglect and of loose living on his part his mother could still remain patient could endure and supremely love for behind the obvious the almost coarse tragedy and consequent appeal of the man's deformity there was the further appeal of something very admirable in the man himself for the emergence and due blossoming of which it would be very possible very worth while for whoso once recognised its existence to wait john nott had been right in his estimate of richard ludovic quayle had been right lady carmody had been right honoria had begun to believe that even before richard had come forth from his self-imposed seclusion in the spring the belief had increased during her subsequent intercourse with him had been reinforced during her few days visit at whitsuntide yet until now she had never freely and openly admitted it she wondered why and then hastily she put such wondering from her again a certain proud modesty held her back she did not want to think of herself in relation to him or of him in relation to herself she wished for a reason she refused to define to exclude the personal element doing that she could permit herself larger latitude of admiration his acknowledgment of fellowship with and obligation of friendship towards all victims of physical disaster kindled her enthusiasm she perceived that it was contrary to the man's natural arrogance natural revolt against the humiliation put upon him a rather superb overcoming in short of nature by grace nor was it the outgrowth of any morbid or sentimental emotion it had no tincture of the hysteric element it took its rise in conviction and in experiment for richard though still young 
struck her as remarkably mature. He had lived his life, sinned his sins, she did not doubt that, suffered unusual sorrows, bought his experience in the open market and at a sufficiently high price, and this was the result. It pleased her imagination by its essential unworldliness, its idealism and individuality of outlook. She went back on her earlier judgment of him, first formulated as a complaint. He was strong, whether for good or evil, now unselfishly for good, and Honoria, being herself among the strong, supremely valued and welcomed strength. And so it happened that the tone of her meditations altered, being increasingly attuned to a serious but very real congratulation, for she perceived that the tragedy of human life also constitutes the magnificence of human life, since it affords, and always must afford, supreme opportunity of heroism. She had traversed the open space of turf, and come to the tall iron hurdles enclosing the paddock. She folded her arms on the topmost bar of the iron gate, and stood there. She wanted to rest a little in these thoughts that had come to her. She was not quite sure of them as yet, but if they meant anything, if they were other than mere rhetoric, they must mean a very great deal, into harmony with which it would be necessary to bring her thought upon many other subjects. She was conscious of an excitement, a reaching out towards some but half-disclosed glory, some new and very exquisite fullness of life. But was it new, after all? Was it not, rather, the at last permitted activity of faculties and sensibilities hitherto refused development, voluntarily, perhaps cowardly, held in check and repressed? She appeared to be making acquaintance with unexpected depths of apprehension and emotion in herself, and this, for cause unknown, brought her into more lively commerce with her immediate surroundings and the sentiment of them. Her eyes rested on them questioningly, as though they might afford a tally to, perhaps an explanation, of the strange yet lovely emotion which had invaded her. Here, in the valley, notwithstanding the recent drought, the grass was lush. Across the paddock, just within the circuit of the far railings, a grove of large beech-trees broke the expanse of living green. Beyond, seen beneath their down-sweeping branches, the surface of the long water repeated the hot purple, the dun colour and silver pink of the sky. On the opposite slope, extending from the Elm Avenue to the outlying masses of the woods and upward to the line of oaks which run parallel with the park palings, were cornlands. The wheat, a red gold, was already for the most part bound in shocks, a company of women, wearing lilac and pink sunbonnets and all-round blue linen aprons, faded by frequent washing to a fine clearness of tone, came down over the blonde stubble. They carried in little baskets and shining tins tea for the white-shirted harvesters who were busy setting up the storm-fallen sheaves. They laughed and talked together, and their voices came to Honoria with a pleasant quality of sound. Two stumbling baby children, hand in hand, followed them, as did a small white and tan spotted dog. One woman was bareheaded and wore a black bodice, which gave a singular value to her figure amid the all-obtaining yellow of the corn. The scene, in its simple and homely charm, 
held the poetry of that happier side of labour of that most ancient of all industries the husbandman's and of the generous giving of the soil set in a frame of opulently coloured woodland and sky the stately red brick and freestone house crowning the highland and looking forth upon it all the whole formed to honoria's thinking a very noble picture and then of a sudden in the midst of her quiet enjoyment of it and a tenderness which the sight of it somehow begot in her honoria was seized by sharp unreasoning regret that she must so soon leave it unreasoning regret that she had engaged to go abroad this winter with poor pretty frivolous young lady tobermory spoilt child of society and of wealth now half crazed rendered desperate by the fear that disease which had laid a threatening finger on her might lay its whole hand cutting short her playtime and breaking her many toys of anything other than toys and playtime she had no conception those brutes of doctors tell tobermory i must give up low gowns she wrote and i adore my neck and shoulders every one always has admired them it makes me utterly miserable to cover them up and now that i am thinner i could have my gowns cut lower than ever nearly down to my waist which makes it all the more intolerable i went to desay about it went over to paris on purpose though tobermory was wild at my travelling in the heat he at desay i mean not poor tea was just as nice as possible and promised to invent new styles still of course i must look dowdy at night in a high gown everybody does i shall feel exactly like our clergyman's wife at ella hay when she comes to dine with us at christmas and easter and once in the summer i refuse to have her oftener than that she has a long back and about fourteen children which she seems to think a great credit to her i don't as they're ugly and she is dreadfully poor she wears her sunday silk with lace wound about don't you know but wound tight that means full dress i am buying some lace a duchess at three and a half guineas a yard i suppose i shall come to winding that of an evening and then i shall look like her it makes me cry dreadfully and as i tell tobermory that is worse for me than any number of lungs darling h if you really love me in the least bring nothing but high gowns perhaps i mayn't mind quite so much if i never see you in a low one there had been much more to the same effect pathetic in its inadequacy and egoism only as honoria reflected that is a style of pathos dangerously liable to pall upon one she sighed for the prospect of spending the winter participating in the frivolities and striving to restrain the indiscretions of this little damaged butterfly did not smile upon her she might have stayed on here stayed on at brockhurst worked over the dear place as she had done so often before helping lady carmody why had she promised well because she had been rather restless unsettled and at loose ends of late whereupon the young lady bent down and unfastened the padlock with a certain decision of movement closed the gate relocking it carefully behind her and started off across the deep grass of the paddock her pale face very serious her small head held high 
she would keep faith with evelyn tobermory of course she would keep faith with her it was not only a matter of honour but of expediency it was much very much better to go yet whence this sudden heat proceeded and why the egyptian journey assumed suddenly such paramount desirability she carefully did not stay to inquire an omission not perhaps without significance the half-dozen dainty fillies meanwhile who had eyed her shyly from their station beneath the beech trees trotted gently towards her with friendly whinnyings their fine ears pricked their long tails carried well away in a sweeping curve honoria went on to meet them she was glad of something to occupy her hands some outside concrete thing to occupy her thought she took the foremost a dark bay by the nose strap of its leather headstall patted the beast's sleek neck looked into its prominent heavy-lidded eyes the blue film over the velvet-like iris and pupil of them giving a singular softness of effect drew down the fine aristocratic head and kissed the little star where the hair turned in at the centre of the smooth hard forehead it was as perfectly bred as she was herself so clean so fresh that to touch it was wholly pleasant then she backed away from it holding it at arm's length noting how every line of its limbs and body was graceful and harmonious full of the purpose of easy strength easy freedom of movement that it was a trifle blown out in barrel from being at grass only gave its contours an added suavity it was a lovely beast a delicious beast honoria smiled upon it talked to patted and coaxed it while another young beauty waxing brave pushed its black muzzle under her arm and lipped at her jacket pockets in search of bread and of apples and these good things once discovered the rest of the drove came about her civilly a trifle proudly as befitted such fine ladies with no pushings and bustlings of vulgar greed and they charmed her she was very much at one with them she fed them fearlessly thrusting one aside in favour of another giving each reward in due turn she passed her hands down over their slender limbs the warm colours and the gloss of them were pleasant to her eyes and they smelt sweet as did the trampled grass beneath their unshod hoofs for a while the human problem its tragedy magnificence and inadequacy alike ceased to trouble her the poetry of these beautiful innocent clean feeding beasts was for the moment sufficient in and by itself but even while she thus played with and rejoiced in them remembrance of their owner came back to her his maiming as against their perfection of finish the lamentable disparity between his physical equipment and theirs honoria's expression lost its nonchalant gaiety she pushed her gentle equine comrades away to left and right not that they ceased to please but that the human problem and the tragedy of it once more became dominant she walked on across the paddock rapidly while the fillies forming up behind her followed in single file treading a sinuous pathway through the grass the foremost one still pushing its black muzzle now and again under her elbow and nibbling insinuatingly at her empty jacket pockets oh if only that horrible misfortune had not befallen richard calmady if if 
but then had it not befallen him would he ever have been excited to so admirable effort would he ever have attained so absorbing and vigorous a personality as he actually had again her thought turned on itself to provocation of momentary impatience honoria unfastened the second padlock with a return of her former decision there were conclusions she wished instinctively to avoid from which she instinctively desired escape she forced aside the all too affectionate bay filly who crowded upon her shot back the bar of the gate and relocked it then once again she kissed the pretty beast on the forehead as it stretched its neck over the top of the gate good-bye dear lass she said win your races and when the time comes drop foals as handsome as yourself and thank your stars you're under orders and so have small chance to muddle your affairs as with your good looks my dear you most assuredly would like all the rest of us with which excellent advice she swung away down the last twenty yards of the avenue and out on to the roadway of the red brick and freestone bridge here in the open above the water the air was sensibly fresher from the paddock the deserted fillies whinnied to her the voices of the harvesters came cheerily from the cornland the men sat in the blond stubble backed by a range of upstanding sheaves the women bright in those frail blues clear pinks and lilacs knelt serving their meal she of the black bodice stood apart her hands upon her hips looking towards the bridge and its solitary occupant the tan and white spotted dog ran to and fro chasing field mice and yapped the baby children staggered after it uttering excited squeakings and cries the lower cloud had parted in the west disclosing an upper stratum of pale gold which widened upward and outward as the minutes passed save immediately below in the shadow of the bridge this found reflection in the water overlaying it as with the blond of the stubble and warmer tones of the sheaves honoria sat down sideways on the coping of the parapet she watched the moorhens dark of plumage a splash of fiery orange on their jaunty little heads swim out with restless jerky motion from the edge of the reed beds and break up the shining surface with diverging lines of rippling brown shadow in the shade cast by the bridge trout rose at the dancing gnats and flies she could see them rush upward through the brown water sometimes they leapt clear of it exposing their silver bellies pink-spotted sides and the olive-green of their backs they dropped again with a flop and rings circled outward from the place of their disappearing all this honoria saw but dreamily pensively she realized as never before that much as she might love this place and the life of it she was a guest only a pilgrim and a sojourner the completeness of her own independence ceased to please me this uncharted freedom tires as she quoted the line honoria smiled these were indeed new aspects of herself where would they carry her both in thought and in action it was a little alarming to contemplate that and then her pensiveness increased a strange nostalgia taking her amounting almost to physical pain for that same but half disclosed glory that same new and very exquisite fullness of life 
apprehension of which had lately been vouchsafed to her. If she could remain very still and undisturbed, if she could empty her consciousness of all else, bend her whole will to an act at once of determination and of reception, perhaps it would be given her clearly to see and to understand. The idealist, the mystic, were very present in Honoria just then. She fixed her eyes upon the shining surface of the water. A conviction grew upon her that could she maintain a certain mental and emotional equilibrium, something of permanent and very vital importance must take place. Suddenly she heard footsteps upon the gravel of the roadway. She started, turned deliberately, holding in check the agitation which possessed her, to find herself confronted by the tall, preeminently modern and mundane figure of Ludovic Quayle. Honoria gave herself a little shake of uncontrollable impatience. For less than Tupman's halfpenny, she would have given the very gentlemanlike intruder a shake too. He let her down with a bump, so to speak, from regions mysterious and supernal to regions altogether social and of this world worldly. And yet she knew that such feelings were not a little hard and unjust as entertained towards poor Mr. Quayle. The young man, in any case, was happily ignorant of having offended. He sauntered out on to the bridge, hat in hand, his head a trifle on one side, his long neck directed slightly forward, his expression that of polite and intimate amusement, but whether amusement at his own or his fellow-creature's expense, it would have been difficult to declare. "'At last I find you, my dear Miss St. Quentin,' he said and i have sought for you as for lost treasure <laughs> forgive the biblical form of address a reminiscence merely of my father's morning ministrations to my unmarried sisters the footmen and the maids he reads them the most surprising little histories at times which make me positively blush <laughs> but that's a detail uh, to account for my invasion of your idyllic solitude i learned incidentally that you propose coming here from ormiston this week I thought I would venture on an early attempt to find you. But I drew the house blank, though assisted by winter, the terrace also blank. Then, from the troco ground, I beheld that which looked promising, coquetting with Dicky's yearlings. So I followed on to know, my father and the maids again, followed on to, to my reward. Mr. Quayle stood directly in front of her, he spoke with admirable urbanity, yet with even greater rapidity than usual. His beautifully formed mouth pursed itself up between the sentences with that effect of indulgent superiority which was at once so attractive and so excessively provoking. But for all that, Honoria perceived that for once in his life the young man was distinctly, not to say acutely, nervous. "'The reward will be limited, I'm afraid,' she replied, "'for my temper is unaccountably out of sorts this afternoon.' "'And if one may make bold to inquire, why out of sorts, dear Miss St. Quentin?' He sat down on the parapet near her, crossed his legs, and fell to nursing his left knee. The woman of the black bodice went up across the pale stubble to her companions, and she talked to them, nodding her head in the direction of the bridge. Oh, I have promised to do a certain thing, and having promised, of course I must do it. 
Honoria looked away towards the harvesters up there among the gold of the corn. And yet now I have committed myself. Thinking it over, I find I dislike doing it warmly. Oh, the statement of the case is just a trifle vague, Mr. Quayle remarked. But if one may brave a suggestion, supersede a first duty by a second and, of course, a greater. With a little exercise of imagination, a little good will, a little assistance from a true friend thrown in, perhaps, it is generally quite possible to manage that, I think. And you are prepared to play the part of the true friend? Oh, undoubtedly. Then go to Cairo for the winter with Evelyn Tobermory. You must take no low gowns. Oh, poor little soul, it is pathetic, though. She's forbidden to wear them. And let me stay here, Honoria said. Ludovic gazed at his hands as they clasped his knee. Then he looked sideways at his companion. Here, meaning... Meaning Brockhurst, dear Miss St. Quentin? he asked very sweetly. "'Meaning England,' she declared. "'England! Ah, really! That pleases me better. Patriotism is an excellent virtue. The remark is not a wholly original one, but it comes in handy just now all the same.' The young lady's head went up. Her face straightened. She was displeased. Turning sideways, she leaned both hands on the stonework and stared down into the water. But speedily she repented. "'See how the fish rise,' she said. "'It really is a pity one hasn't a fly-rod.' "'I was under the impression you once told me "'that you objected to taking life, "'except in self-defence or for purposes of commissariat. "'The trout would almost certainly be muddy, "'and I am quite unconscious of being exposed to any danger, "'at least from the trout.' "'Miss St. Quentin kept her eyes fixed upon the water.' "'I told you my temper was out of sorts,' she said. "'Is that a warning?' Ludovic inquired, with the utmost mildness. Honoria was busy feeling in her jacket pockets. At the bottom of them a few crumbs remained. She emptied these onto the surface of the water by the simple expedient of turning the pockets inside out. "'I know nothing about warnings,' she said. "'I state a plain fact. You can make of it what you please.' The young man rose leisurely from his place, sauntered across the roadway, and stood with his back to her, looking down the valley. The harvesters, their meal finished, moved away towards the further side of the great cornfield. The women followed them slowly, gleaning as they went. It was very quiet. And again there came to Honoria that ache of longing for the but half-disclosed glory and fullness of life. It was there, an actuality. Could she but find it, had she but the courage and the wit? Then, from the open moorland beyond the park palings, came the sound of horses trotting sharply. Ludovic Quayle turned and recrossed the road. He smiled, but his superfine manner, his effect of slight impertinence, were for the moment in abeyance. "'Miss St. Quentin,' he said, what is the use of fencing any longer? I have done that which I engaged to do, namely displayed the patience of innumerable asses. 
and if i may be pardoned mentioning such a thing the years pass really they do and i seem to get no forwarder my position becomes slightly ludicrous oh, i know it i know it honoria cried penitently that i am ludicrous oh no no she protested that i have been unreasonable and traded on your forbearance that i have done wrong in allowing you to wait that you could not very well help he said since i chose to wait and indeed i greatly preferred waiting as long as there seemed to be a hope there was something anything in short to wait for oh but that is precisely what i have never been sure about myself whether there really was anything to wait for or not she sat straight on the coping of the parapet again her face bore the most engaging expression there was a certain softness in her aspect to-day she was less of a youth a comrade so it seemed to mr quayle more distinctly more consciously a woman but now to the sound of trotting horse-hoofs was added that of wheels and with a clang the park gates were thrown open and are you still uncertain in the back of your mind is there still a trifle of doubt if so give me the benefit of it the young man pleaded half laughingly and half brokenly a carriage passed under the grey archway of the red brick and freestone lodges rapidly it came on down the wide smooth string-coloured road a space of neatly kept turf on either side under the shade of the heavy foliaged elm trees mr quayle glanced at it and paused with raised eyebrows i call you to witness that i do not swear dear miss st quentin though men have been known to become blasphemous on slighter provocation than this he said however the rather violently approaching interruption will soon be over i hope and believe since the driving is that of richard carmody of brockhurst when his temper like your own being somewhat out of sorts he as jehu the son of nimshi of old my father's morning ministrations to the maids again he driveth furiously then with an air of humorous resignation his mouth working a little his long neck directed forward as in mildly surprised inquiry he stood watching the approaching mail phaeton the wheels of it made a hollow rumbling the tramp of the horses was impetuous and the pole chains rattled as it swung out on to the bridge and drew up the grooms whipped down and ran round to the horses heads and these stood a little extended still and rigid as of bronze the red of their open nostrils and the silver mountings of their harness very noticeable lady carmody called to mr quayle the young man passed round at the back of the carriage and standing on the far side of the roadway talked with her honoria st quentin remained sitting on the parapet of the bridge a singular disinclination to risk any movement had come upon her not the present situation in relation to ludovic quayle but that other situation of the but half-disclosed glory the new and exquisite fullness of life oppressed her penetrating her whole being to the point of physical weakness questioningly yet with entire unself-consciousness she looked up at richard carmody and he from the exalted height of the driving-seat 
looked down at her. A dark cloth rug was wrapped tight around him from the waist downward. It concealed the high driving iron against which his feet rested. It concealed the strap which steadied him in his place. His person appeared finely proportioned. His head and face were surprisingly handsome, seen thus from below. Though it must be conceded, the expression of the latter was very far from angelic. "'You were well advised to stay at home, Honoria,' he said. There was a grating tone in his voice. "'Oh, the function was even more distinguished for dullness than you expected?' "'On the contrary, it was not in the least dull. It was actively objectionable, ingeniously unpleasant, whereas this—' His face softened a little. He glanced at the golden water and cornland, the lush green of the paddock, the rich massive colouring of woodland and sky. Honoria glanced at it likewise, and so doing rose to her feet. That nostalgia of things new and glorious ached in her, yet the pain of it had a strange and intimate charm, making it unlike any pain she had ever yet felt. It hurt her very really, it made her weak, yet she would not have had it cease. "'Oh, yes, it is all very lovely, isn't it?' she said. She laid her hand on the folded leather of the carriage hood. Again she looked up. "'It is a good deal to have this, always, your own.' to come back to, Richard. She spoke sadly, almost unwillingly. Dicky did not answer, but he looked down, a certain violence and energy very evident in him, his blue eyes hard, and in the depth of them desolate as the sky of a winter night. Calmly, yet in a way desperately, as those who dare inquiry beyond the range of permitted human speech, the young man and woman looked at one another. Lady Carmody's sweet voice, meanwhile, went on in kindly question, Ludovic Quayle's in well-placed, slightly elaborate answer. The near horse threw back its head, and the pole-chains rattled smartly. Honoria's lips parted, but the words, if words indeed there were, died in her throat. She raised her hands, as though putting a tangible and actual presence away from her. She did not change colour but for the moment her delicate features appeared thickened as by a rush of blood. She was almost plain, yet the effect was inexpressively touching. It was as though she had received some mysterious injury, which she was dumb, incapable to express. She let her hands drop at her sides, turned away and walked to the far end of the bridge. Suddenly Richard's voice came to her, aggressive, curt. "'Look out, Ludovic. Stand clear of the wheel.' The horses sprang forward, the grooms scrambled up at the back, and the carriage swung away from the brightness of the open to the gloom of the avenue and up the long hill to the house. Mr. Quayle contemplated it for a minute or so, and then, with an air of amused toleration, he followed Miss St. Quentin across the bridge. "'Poor dear Dicky Carmody, poor dear Dicky,' he said. "'He attempts the impossible.' fails to attain it, as a matter of course, and meanwhile misses the possible, equally as a matter of course. It is all very magnificent, no doubt, but it is also not a little uncomfortable at times for other people. However, that trifle of criticism is, after all, beside the mark. Now that the whirlwind has ceased, Miss St. Quentin, 
may the still small voice of my own affairs presume to make itself but there he stopped abruptly my dear friend he asked in quick anxiety what is the matter oh pardon me but what on earth has happened to you for honoria leaned both elbows on the low carved pillar terminating the masonry of the parapet she covered her face with her hands and incontestably she shuddered queerly from head to foot wait half a second she said in a stifled voice it's nothing i'm all right slowly she raised herself and took a long breath then she turned to her faithful lover showing him a brave if somewhat drawn and tired countenance ludovic she said gently oh don't don't please let us talk any more about all that and don't i entreat you wait any longer if there was any uncertainty if there was a doubt in the back of my mind it's gone oh forgive me this must sound brutal but there is no more doubt i can't marry you i am sorry horribly sorry for you have been as charming to me as a man could be but i shall never be able to marry you mr quayle's expression retained its sweetness even its effect of amusement though his lips quivered and his eyelids were a little red i do not come up to the requirements of the grand passion he said alas poor me oh no no it isn't that honoria protested ah then he paused with an air of extraordinary intelligence perhaps someone else does yes she said simply i don't like it but it's there and so i've got to go through with it someone else does in that case it is indeed hopeless i give it up he cried he moved aside and stood gazing at the rising trout in the golden-brown water then he raised his head sharply as in obedience to a thought suddenly occurring to him and gazed at brockhurst house the brightness of the western sky found reflection in its many windows a noble cheerfulness seemed to pervade it as it crowned the hillside amid its gardens and far-ranging woods by all that's mr quayle began but he repressed the exclamation and his expression was wholly friendly as he returned to miss st quentin good-bye he said i am glad honestly glad you have found the grand passion though the object of it can't in the first blush of the affair be altogether persona grata to myself but to show that really i have a little root of magnanimity in me i am quite prepared to undertake a winter at cairo plus evil in tobermory and minus low dresses if that will enable you to stay on here i mean in england of course he pursed up his beautiful mouth he carried his head on one side with the liveliest effect of provocation as he held the young lady's hand while bidding her farewell out of my heart i hope you will be very happy he said i shall never be anything but honoria st quentin she answered rather hastily and then she softened forgiving him oh why she said why will you make me quarrel with you just now just at the last oh, because because mr quayle's voice broke though his superior smile remained to him 
"'I think I will not prolong the interview,' he said. "'To be frank with you, dear Miss St. Quentin, "'I am about as miserable as is consonant "'with complete sanity and excellent health. "'I do not propose to blow my brains out, "'but I think, yes, thanks, "'you appreciate the desirability of that course of action too. "'I think it is about time I went.'" End of chapter 9 of book 6